Our Heavenly Father, we have just sung this prayer and we add to it that as we come now to the proclamation of your word, uh, you would uh, plow up our hearts and uh, make us to be that good soil ready to receive uh, the sowing of your word. May we not be the rocky soil that would wither under uh, the, the sun of persecution. Uh, may we not be that thorny soil that would be strangled by uh, the thorns of the cares and the desires of this world, but rather good soil uh, in which uh, the seed zone would spring up, take root and spring up and bear good fruit, 30, 60, even 100 fold. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles again to our sermon text, Daniel chapter 7. You'll find it in the Pew Bibles on page 744. And since we read it earlier, I won't uh, be reading the text in full again, but we will be uh, referring to the text as we uh, work our way through the passage this evening. Last week, we saw the final court narrative in Daniel chapter 6, 6 Uh, chapters of court narratives, and this week we come to the first of Daniel's apocalyptic visions, which make up most of the rest of the book. Dale Ralph Davis writes, Roughly, I would say that biblical apocalyptic is a sort of prophecy that seeks to enlighten and encourage a people despised and cast off by the world with a vision of the God who will come to impose his kingdom on the wreckage and rebellion of human history, And it communicates this message through the use of wild, scary, imaginative, bizarre, and head-scratching imagery. From this summary statement, we can see that uh, we can expect imagery that can be sometimes frightening, other times puzzling, and yet the overall message of comfort and hope is clear. Though God's people will suffer, God is on the throne. God's people will triumph in the end, and God's kingdom will will last forever. Much like the book of Revelation, Christians can sometimes avoid these visions because of the difficulty of interpreting the symbolism. But if we keep ourselves focused on the overall message, which is quite clear, you will find them very encouraging. Another thing we've noticed in the recent chapters is the parallelism here in the book of Daniel. Chapters 2 through 7, as we said way back in the beginning, uh, here in Daniel are written in Aramaic, and this section of the book is in uh, the form of a chiasm, which simply means that there is a mirror parallelism. We saw this in chapters 4 and 5, that those two chapters were parallel, both describing the humbling of proud kings, first King Nebuchadnezzar and then King Belshazzar. And in a similar way, chapters 3 and 6 both told stories about civil disobedience followed by the Lord's salvation. First, it was salvation through the burning, fiery furnace, and then in chapter 6, through the lion's den. Now we will see that chapter 7 parallels chapter 2. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar received a prophetic dream from the Lord of a statue representing four earthly kingdoms, which was smashed by a small stone, which then grew and filled the whole earth, representing the kingdom of God. Now Daniel receives a parallel vision of four beasts representing four kingdoms, which are judged and destroyed, even as one like a son of man receives an everlasting kingdom from God. 
And the vision begins with the four beasts emerging from the sea onto the earth, and it alternates then between earth and heaven. And then it's followed by an interpretation in verses 17 through 27. Before our sermon, we'll focus first on the four beasts and then on the heavenly vision of, the, of God and the Son of Man. And we'll conclude by considering Daniel's response and what should be our response. So first we have four terrifying beasts, four violent kingdoms. Verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. We see here that we're going back in time from chapter 6. The vision is dated to the reign of King Belshazzar, about 552 B.C. And in verse 3, Daniel sees the four great beasts emerging from the sea. In the Bible, the sea is often used as a symbol for chaos. The sea is not something that can be controlled by man. As we read the descriptions of these beasts, we shouldn't just be picturing the regular animals that Daniel references We should remember that he says these are great beasts, and they are simply like these animals. In reality, we should be picturing something more like like something out of a, a horror movie, something that resembles these animals, but in reality is far worse. So the first beast, verse 4, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. This beast, like a lion with eagle's wings, corresponds to the head of gold in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and therefore it represents the Babylonian empire. Now, lions played a prominent role in Babylonian iconography, and the prophet Jeremiah compares Babylon to both a lion and an eagle in Jeremiah 49. The wings being plucked off refer to Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation when he was driven away from man and made to eat grass like a wild beast. And then I believe the rest of this verse tells of his restoration and conversion. It was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Remember how Nebuchadnezzar's mind was restored. At this point in time, Daniel is living a few years after Nebuchadnezzar's death. And so this portion of the vision is actually history, not foretelling. Next we have verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. The second beast, like a bear corresponds to the arms and chest of silver, and it represents the Medo-Persian Empire. The posture being raised up on one side either represents a a readiness to strike, or perhaps it's some sort of gross deformity. The three ribs in its mouth represent a thirst for conquest. Scholars have proposed particular conquests that may be represented by these three ribs, that's not certain, the best proposal is Persia's major conquests of Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt. Despite these conquests, it's ordered to go on, to arise, devour much flesh. Next we have verse 6. After this I looked, and behold another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. 
And this third beast, the winged leopard, or like a winged leopard, corresponds to the belly and thighs of bronze, and it represents the Greek Empire. The wings represent the swiftness of their military conquests. Under the leadership of Alexander the Great, the Greeks rapidly conquered the Persian Empire in 331 BC, and they went on to conquer territory as far as India. And the four heads represent the division of the Greek Empire following the death of Alexander. It was split into four parts, ruled by Ptolemy, Seleucus, Cassander, and Lysimachus. Now, you'll be hearing the names Ptolemy and Seleucus again, as they will be important in our interpretation of chapters 10 and 11. Let's continue on to the fourth beast, verse 7. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. This fourth beast was so horrific that Daniel could not think of any ordinary animal to compare it to. It's parallel to the legs of iron and the feet of iron mixed with clay, which represents not only the Roman Empire, but as I argued in my sermon on Daniel 2, it is Rome and beyond, as it depicts an empire that will not finally be destroyed until Christ's second coming. And this is confirmed by the fact, as it says here, it is different from all the beasts that were before it. The iron in the statue from Nebuchadnezzar's dream is paralleled here by great iron teeth, by which the beast tears and devours and what is followed, what is left, it tramples. It's depicted as more aggressive and predatory than even the powerful beasts that came before it. The ten horns may be parallel to the ten toes from the statue, and here they are said to refer to ten kings. The fact that the little horn, uh, it's in the next verse, overthrows three of them, indicates that they are not necessarily a succession of ten kings, but more likely this kingdom is, at least at some point, a coalition of multiple nations with multiple kings reigning in alliance together. In fact, I think it's quite likely that 10 is a symbolic number, which represents a multitude of kings, not necessarily exactly 10. Now here I also want to bring in the interpretation given by the angel from the second part of the passage. Daniel was so alarmed by the vision, and particularly by the fourth beast and the little horn, that he asked an angel to explain these things to him. And so in verse 17 we read, These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. This isn't exactly news, but confirms what we suspected. The beasts represent kings or kingdoms. But here we also encounter the same phenomenon we saw in Daniel chapter 2. The king represents the kingdom. So in verse 17, the four beasts are said to represent kings, but later in verse 23, the fourth beast is said to represent a kingdom. The king represents the kingdom. One other piece of new information uh, in the second part of the chapter is that the fourth beast is said to have bronze claws, and he uses these also in in his stamping down and trampling what remains. Now it's out of this fourth beast, this fourth kingdom, that the little horn arises. Verse 8. 
I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. So following the ten horns of the beast, there is another king who arises, the little horn who plucks up three of the horns, that is, three kings overthrowing them. He has the eyes of a man, man and a mouth which he uses to speak great things, to boast. Now clearly this horn is described as small in size, but great in power. We learn a little bit more about the little horn in verse 21 and 25. Verse 21, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. In verse 25, he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Here we see that the little horn specifically targets God's people waging war on the church. One way he does this is by seeking to change the times and the law, perhaps outlawing, Sabbath-keeping, and trying to distort or change God's law. We see that God, in his all-wise providence, gives the saints over into his hand for a season. Specifically, it said, three and a half times, if you add it up. At the time of his judgment will soon come. Now we must ask the question of identity. Who is this little horn? One common identification, especially among liberal scholars, is King Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He was a king of the Seleucid Empire, one of the four remnants of the Greek Empire, and he ruled over Judea and strongly persecuted the the Jews from 167 to 164 B.C., to the point of trying to abolish the Jewish religion altogether. He prohibited Sabbath-keeping, trying to change the law. He turned the second temple into a temple for Zeus, and he made the practice of circumcision a capital offense. And so there are things that fit. While critical scholars identify Antiochus as the little horn of Daniel 7, There are several reasons that this, however, does not fit. He was a king, but he did not follow ten other kings. He did not overthrow any other kings, much less three other kings. He also was not destroyed by the coming of the Son of Man and his kingdom. According to critical scholars, the occasion for the writing of the entire book of Daniel was a response to the persecution of Antiochus. But as we've shown Repeatedly, this is simply not the case. It was written primarily by Daniel during his days, not hundreds of years later. However, there is another little horn mentioned in Daniel 8, 9 through 14. And in this passage, he emerges from the Greek empire, not from the fourth beast, which we've identified here as Rome and beyond. Antiochus can and should be identified with the little horn of chapter 8, not the little horn of chapter 7. So while Antiochus is not the little horn of chapter 7, there is a significance in the shared imagery and the shared title. Antiochus is a type, he is a foreshadowing of the little horn who is still to come. So then we need to return to our question, who is the little horn of chapter 7? 
The proper identification is the Antichrist, who is also known as the man of lawlessness in the New Testament. Now here too, John says there are many Antichrists. Anyone who would lead others away from Christ in the gospel can be considered an Antichrist. But the New Testament also clearly teaches that there will be a powerful figure during the times leading up to Christ's coming who will be the final, climactic Antichrist. And I believe that is who is being depicted here in Daniel 7. Furthermore, the kingdom of the Antichrist is depicted in Revelation chapter 13, which we read just last week, if you remember. And John picks up on the beastly imagery of Daniel 7. The beast of Revelation 13 rises from the sea. And he has all the features of all four beasts in Daniel 7. It was like a leopard with ten horns and seven heads. Its feet were a bear's, its mouth a lion's mouth. Just like the little horn, it speaks with haughty and blasphemous words, and it wages war against the saints. The length of of time is also the same. Daniel speaks in terms of time, times, and half a times, a total of three and a half years, while Revelation says it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, three and a half years. We have two slightly different apocalyptic visions that they are clearly depicting the same reality of the little horn, the Antichrist. And the end is the same. He has given power for a season to wage war on the church that God is always on the throne. And in the end, Christ is victorious. So that brings us to our second point this, this evening. God rules over all. In verses 9 and 10 and 13 and 14, the scene changes from earth to heaven. And the language changes from prose to poetry to describe the transcendence of God in a worshipful tone. And the transition from verse 8 to 9 is abrupt. Just as Daniel is being overwhelmed by these terrifying, sinful human kingdoms, he is now reassured that God is reigning in heaven and he is in control of all these things. Let's read verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing, clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. The thrones indicate the setting of a courtroom. And there is more than one throne because there is one throne for God the Father and a second throne prepared for the Son of Man. The Ancient of Days is a title for God Almighty, God the Father. He's depicted here as a wise old man dressed in perfect white robes with white hair. And his throne is made of fiery flames. It also has wheels of burning fire, meaning that this throne is a mobile chariot. In verse 10, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. Not only is his throne made of fire, but a stream of fire is flowing out from him. This fire is not only a symbol of God's glory and power, but in this setting, which is a setting of judgment in the courtroom, it likely reflects his burning wrath, which is about to be poured out on these rebellious kingdoms. Now, if the fourth beast was terrifying, the Ancient of Days on his fiery chariot throne is an even more awesome 
sight to behold. A judge is surrounded by his angelic servants numbering 10,000 times 10,000. And there is no larger number in Hebrew or Aramaic. It's another way of saying they were beyond counting. A court sits in judgment to begin its work. And the books, which presumably contain a record of evidence or judgments, are opened. It's by what is contained in these books, the earthly kingdoms of men will be condemned. We then see the judgment put into action in verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. While the little horn was in the midst of his boasting, not only he, but also the entire fourth beast is destroyed and burned with fire. This rapid destruction of the fourth beast, and along with the little horn shows, as powerful as it was on the earth, God only needs to give the command, and its life and its reign of terror are over. In verse 12, we also learn the fate of the other beasts. Their dominion is removed, but their lives are prolonged for a season and a time. This seems to refer to the fact that the Babylonian, Greek, and Persian empires fell and yet had lasting cultural influence and after their dominion was removed. The empires fell, but the people remained and other nations have risen in their place. We also have depictions of this same judgment in the second half of the vision. The judgment of the little horn in verse 26. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And then we see parallels to these things also in the New Testament. In Paul's passage on the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, we read, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And then in Revelation 19.20, we have the final judgment on the beast and his false prophet. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. In the following chapter, these two will be joined by Satan, the dragon, in the lake of fire. This judgment scene reminds the saints in their suffering that there is justice on the earth. God will deliver you through your trials and bring you into his everlasting kingdom. Following this judgment scene, Daniel returns to poetry. He looks again to the heavens. And in this poetry, it's meant to emphasize again the importance of these verses. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, There came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. What we are witnessing is something akin to a coronation service. Daniel sees the coming of one like a son of man, clearly contrasting this human figure with the four beasts who are like a lion, like a bear, like a leper. While the beasts emerge from the sea, he emerges from the clouds of heaven, revealing that he comes down from above like God himself. In fact, there are 
about 70 other instances in the Old Testament when the Lord is said to come with the clouds. And so we must assume that this is a divine figure, not a mere mortal. He is presented before the Ancient of Days, presumably by the angels. And this escort is given to honor him before the true honor that follows. Verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The beasts gain dominion through their violent conquests, but the son of dominion has glory and dominion, the son of man has dominion and glory bestowed upon him by the ancient of days. And his dominion is worldwide, encompassing all peoples, nations, and languages. Now we saw kings like Nebuchadnezzar and Darius use language like this in their proclamations, but it wasn't literally true. They were exaggerating. But for this king, his dominion will truly encompass all the peoples of the earth. And also note how it says that they will serve him. This could mean everyday service, that the everyday service rendered to a king. But this word is primarily used for worship, including all nine other uses in the book of Daniel. And so really, it should be translated worship here. All peoples, nations, and languages shall worship him. That also lines up with what follows. Everlasting dominion. This cannot possibly be the dominion of a mere mortal, but of a divine and immortal king. While dominion was taken away from the beast, his kingdom is everlasting. It will not pass away, and it will not be destroyed. So just as we asked, who is the little horn? Now we must ask, who is this like a son of man? Now some have identified him with the saints of the Most High, and there is some evidence for this. They are said in the second half of the vision to receive the kingdom. This is simply because they are the people of the king, and they receive the kingdom along with the king. But here we are seeing the king, not the people. Now, if there was any ambiguity at the time of, that Daniel received this vision, it's taken away the coming of our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself adopts the Son of Man as his preferred title to refer to himself. And we could say that there is still a little bit of ambiguity to this title, for it can mean a, a simple human being. And it's used that way in the book of Ezekiel. There it's a humbling title, son of man, a, a, a mere man. Or it can also refer to the divine king we see here in Daniel. But all ambiguity is removed when Jesus speaks of his second coming in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew twenty four thirty. He says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Then in his trial before the Jewish high council, when they ask him to tell them clearly whether or not he is the Christ, he could put it no more clearly than this. Matthew twenty six sixty four, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
when the high priest heard this, he recognized not only the reference to Daniel, but also that the coming on the clouds was a claim to divinity. And so he tore his robes, and the council swiftly condemned Jesus for blasphemy and sentenced him to death. Perhaps they thought that in putting him to death, they would prove that he was not truly the Messiah. But in fact, we know that this was the key to his ministry. In dying on the cross, he accomplished his mission of accomplishing our salvation. He died, and he has risen. And as we saw this morning, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Third, let's consider Daniel's response and what should be our response. We have Daniel's response recorded first in verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. After this, he's able to ask an angel for further interpretation. But then at the end of the vision, his response is essentially unchanged. Verse 28, here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. And my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. And just as Nebuchadnezzar was deeply troubled by his dream, so Daniel is now greatly alarmed by his vision. He has learned more about the beastly kingdoms that God has given dominion on the earth, even to wage war on the saints for a time. And even though we see that they will ultimately be destroyed and the kingdom of God will last forever, Daniel is still deeply troubled by what he has learned. I certainly don't want to judge Daniel too harshly. I think perhaps he needed some time to reflect on what he saw to grasp the overall message of it. It also may be that his alarm is not simply at the terrifying beasts, but he may also be overwhelmed by the vision of God in his glory and in his wrath being poured out in judgment. But I would simply say this evening, your response should not be the same as Daniel's response. We see two great contrasting figures in this chapter the little horn, the Antichrist, and the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. One seeks to destroy us, and the other has given his life in order to save us. The little horn will exercise dominion for a season, but then will be destroyed forever. The Son of Man was killed and spent three days in the grave, but then rose again to new life and will reign forever. And his kingdom is everlasting. But he does not reign alone. Verse 18. That the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. His people, you and me and all who trust in Christ, we are invited to share in his kingdom and to reign alongside him forever. Of course, he receives all the glory and we cast our crowns at his feet because he has done it all. He has accomplished our salvation. But the scripture does speak of believers receiving a crown, a crown of life, an unfading crown of glory, if only we persevere holding fast to Christ through the trials of this life, knowing that he is holding fast to us. 
In the midst of our trials, it can seem like the wild beasts, the rebellious kingdoms of men are running the show. We know that God is in control and we are not in this battle unarmed or unarmored. As Paul writes in Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is a spiritual battle that we are fighting. And here is the spiritual equipment we are given to fight it. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And so having donned the armor of God with the sword of, spirit, of the Spirit in our hand, and dependent in all things on God in prayer, we can stand fast in the evil day. And in all this, in every trial, we must also lift our eyes to heaven and remember that God is seated on his throne. He is reigning and he is sovereign over all. Christ has died and risen and ascended, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again. And on that day, he will capture the beast and the false prophet and the dragon and cast them all into the lake of fire. The promise stands for you, that you will dwell with Christ in his kingdom forever. So here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this great vision that you revealed to your servant Daniel. And though it is filled with frightening images that may be puzzling at first, it is most of all filled with a great assurance that you are reigning and that you have given all power and all authority and all dominion to your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have given us this great assurance that though we will pass through many trials, Christ's victory is assured, and it is in Christ that we have our victory as well. And so, Father, do give us strength for the battles that you cause us, call us to fight, for the trials that you call us to pass through, and help us to don that armor that you have given us in the gospel, uh, the armor that is Christ himself, as we put on Christ and as we depend on you in prayer, help us to rest in him this day and every day. And strengthen us even now as we come to his table. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.